Sean Guyton. I'm the lead pastor at Trailside Church. Thanks for stopping by. I hope that by the end of this message, you feel encouraged, that you feel closer to Christ than you ever did before, and that through its message, you will want to be more like Jesus every single day. Enjoy the message, and thanks for stopping by. hurricanes in that time. To come, I fear that the whole country will reap the whirlwind. FBI Director Christopher Wray said his agents are investigating about a thousand homegrown terror threats. Church, how are we? Good. Good. good, good. How many of us stayed up really late to watch football last night? Anybody? <laughs> Most of us. All right, awesome. Well, uh, I enjoyed all seven overtimes of uh, Texas A&M game that made me go to sleep a lot later, but it's probably the best thing I've ever seen. It's the only time I've ever watched SEC football and been like, yeah, all right, this is pretty good. So um, that was the first time for everything. Hey, uh, I'm excited about a few things going on, but uh, as Chris stated, next week we're starting um, what may be a series that makes a lot of people mad. I'm not sure. Maybe not, but it's called Seasons Grievings. And I thought, what, what a, a perfect opportunity to speak about what I saw Friday. Did anybody go Black Friday shopping? Anyone? Anybody? Yeah. Um, I saw something I'd never seen before. You know, there's a lot of things we see on the news, and you know, there's always one person who gets in a fight over a television, or something goes down. I saw at Target, Target, okay, on Woodruff Road, a lady who had to be in her mid-70s in the back of a police car. And I thought to myself, well, I guess Black Friday really is uh, rough for everybody. But there was a lady who was probably 73, 74 years old, had her little biker hat on, chilling in the back while her daughter, I, I would assume, was standing outside the police car begging the officer to please let her mom go, like typing away furiously on her iPad. And I thought, well, this lady just wanted to have some fun, right? She's gone so long trying to figure her life out that she thought, you know, tonight, tonight, there'll be a lot of people. Maybe I'll get away with that little bracelet uh, for $18 I've always wanted from Target. But uh, anyway, hey, you see all kinds of crazy things. Before we dive in, let me pray for us real quick, and uh, we will get going. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that uh, you are good and that you are always moving in all things. And Father, I just pray uh, that whether, um, whether our hearts are uh, still focused on football and what happened or uh, whatever is going on this week, that you would allow us to just give this next uh, 20 or 25 minutes or so back to you that we would um, be aware of the things you're doing in our hearts and our lives that you'd speak to us through your word this morning because you're good and we trust that. Um, we love you and tune in. We pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So the last few weeks we've been tearing through the book of Jonah um, and today we finally finished. So it's the last week of our Jonah series. If you've missed this, 
Uh, I want to tell you there's a great opportunity. We have all of our sermons now are online or video um, through the Mevo, which I'm assuming is on and working. Uh, but we also have been putting up a podcast. So we have our very own podcast. So, uh, you know, kind of big time. I know, I know it's a little smaller crowd today due to football and Thanksgiving, but we have a podcast. So it uh, kind of tells you everything you need to know about where we're going, right? Yeah. Um, but that podcast is really cool. It's actually going to be, it's every Sunday, uh, our sermon series. You'll be able to check in and miss if you're out of town. But also, this coming week, we're going to be starting what we call Trailside Conversations. And we're having an interview with a professor at Furman University. Um, he actually plays drums here every now and then. But he's a, a believer and he's a, a Christian philosopher. And he's a, a, he has a doctorate in philosophy. And we're going to talk to him about some interesting things, what it means to uh, follow Jesus and also talk about culture and why philosophy is important. And so we have all these awesome discussions planned out for the next couple of weeks. So if you drive around and have time in a car or you just maybe like to listen to podcasts while you're hanging out in the house or cooking or cleaning or whatever it might be, I want to encourage you, uh, you can subscribe and, and log in there and listen to everything that you hear here on Sunday and also those incredible conversations. So got a couple really cool things planned for that. Uh, you can find us just by searching Trailside Church and you'll see our logo. So, uh, But anyways, we spent the last few weeks going through the book of Jonah and I hope that you felt challenged as I have as I've been fighting through this and uh, preaching and teaching and studying because what I'm finding with Jonah is a lot of people like to talk about him and think, well, that's that's Jonah, and I can separate myself from that because I've never been in the belly of a fish, and I've never had to go prophesy, and I've never had God call me to these huge things. What I'm realizing is that I think Jonah actually displays our heart a lot to us. Like, I see more of myself in Jonah's story than I think I was ready to see, um, even though it's someone who I've you know, read about my whole life or been told about, or even when you're a small child, you hear the story of Jonah being swallowed in the fish. Um, I always thought the vomiting part was cooler than the swallowing part. Uh, when you're nine and you're a little boy, you think that's cool and just bodily fluids go places. So, but, so I had to see if my mom was awake. But what I'm finding is that the heart of Jonah is actually more um, descriptive of my own heart, of being comfortable, of wanting to do what I want to do instead of what God wants. Or maybe even just being mad at God about something that I probably maybe have a right to be mad about on a human level, but it comes down to a lack of trust with who he is. And I've, I've seen that as I've gone through the last few weeks of things that God's been dealing with me and, and removing from me. And there's this famous skit from these guys called the Skit Guys. Have you ever seen them? They do kind of funny uh, little jokey skits, but they also do something that was really uh, changed me and kind of messed me up that I saw when I was probably 22 or 23 years old. It's called God's Chisel. And what it is, is I should have shown it, but it's like 14 minutes long and then we really wouldn't have gotten out of here until like 2 o'clock. But what it is, it, it shows a man who's mad at God and God has this chisel and he's slowly chipping away parts of this man. And, and although it hurts, although it doesn't feel good, it's because he's refining him. And I thought, man, how much is that the story of Jonah and how much is that the story of me? Because we've gotten comfortable in church. Uh, we've seen it, right? We've gotten to the point where we're in the club, so we don't have to worry about anyone else being in the club. And as I was studying, I was reading about this guy, Jonathan Swift, who some of you guys who are readers may have heard of. Who's it? Anyone heard of Jonathan Swift? A couple of us. All right, anyone heard of Gulliver's Travels? More of us. There we go. All right, I'm going to connect it to. All right, here's your chance to learn today. Jonathan Swift is the author of Gulliver's Travels. 
Okay, I know, crazy, right? You didn't see that one coming from a mile away, but there it is. But Jonathan Swift also was a failed priest. I thought that was really interesting. I was reading this biography, because he had this quote I'm going to share with you in just a minute. But Jonathan Swift uh, wrote tons of books, tons of stories, tons of poems. He accelerated. He actually was uh, the top of the class, uh, was leading a college, an entire uh, section of a college, school to college. And then he was called into the ministry as a priest. And he apparently made the wrong person mad. And he ended up being sent out to the Irish countryside. And had a miserable time as a priest. Genuinely hated it. And he had 15 people would come to his church. And he would, he would preach his heart out. And he loved scripture, loved the word, but he didn't really love ministry. And so he found his place writing stories and writing poems and even getting in and being an activist in the Irish culture, Irish problems and government. But he said something in one of his books that I thought, man, that is like, that is the heart of exactly what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. And this is what Jonathan Swift, author of Gulliver's Travels, says about the church. And this is 1730. All right, so someone do the math. That's a long time ago. And I want you to be amazed at how much it still rings true today. This is what he says. We are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There is no place in heaven for you, for we can't have heaven crammed. I thought, whoa, man. Right, part of you wants to laugh. You're just like, okay, I need to not hurt when I hear that, right? It's kind of rough. <coughs> but that, that's so the heart of a lot of the churches today. Like, we're in. We're good. We want the table in heaven to look a lot like us, right? We want to talk about the same sports teams. There's no room in heaven for Michigan fans. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. There it is. God loves them too. They just chose wrong. But, but we want the heart of the church to be the heart of us, where it's not our fault, not our concern. Well, we're in the club, so we don't have to worry about anybody else. And so we can come and be comfortable and sit back and relax. And there's not that urgency that I'm so happy and so thankful that someone else had for me. We've lost that, that whatever urgency it was for someone to get you into a place where you would hear the name of Jesus, we have lost because we've become comfortable in our own selves, in our own place. And so that's what Jonathan here says, what, 290 years ago. We are God's chosen few, all others will be damned. There's no place in heaven for you, for we can't have heaven crammed. And that's what we see with Jonah. So if the same thing was true for Jonah in 700 BC, 600 BC, and the same was true for Jonathan Swift in 1730, and the same is true for us, then what are we to learn today by studying and understanding what it is that happens in the book of Jonah here? Because as we talked about last week, if you were here, you, you know we, we said that Jonah's issue is he laments God's relenting heart. He's upset that God would have the audacity to forgive. So he's mad at God. And he's mad at God because he knows how good God is. He knows God is forgiving. He knows God is caring. He knows God is slow to anger and quick to forgive. And Jonah didn't like that because he had made a qualification of, of the people of Nineveh. He decided that they weren't good enough for him. So they couldn't be good enough for God. 
And, and we talked about Jonah was scared of what people might think of him. Because as he finally got to the city of Nineveh and spoke this judgment that God had over them, God forgave. And so if that happened, then maybe Jonah wasn't actually a great prophet. Anybody in here ever felt like a bad Christian? I listened to a podcast called that because so many people talk about it. Yeah. And we see that. We see Jonah failing and feeling like a failure and being mad at God. And we say, well, the Old Testament doesn't matter. It's not important to us. And yet what we find in Jonah is we find our hearts. We find our lives and our stories. And, and, and I hope that cuts a little bit. I, I hope you feel, I hope you feel that. Because I know I did. And I do. Because it's hard to look in the mirror. What we see in Jonah's life is we see Jonah's heart, but we also, as we'll study today, continue to see God's mercy. And so we find ourselves at the scene of Jonah, walking out of the city, sitting down on the desert, waiting for God, hoping, looking at the city, that God will destroy it. And this is what we read, in, picking up in uh, verse 6 of chapter 4. Actually, I'm going to read verse 5 to give us a little context there. So Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, provided a plant, and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Isn't that just like God? Like we're angry and mad, stomping our feet. The Lord just gives us a little bit. Shows us a little mercy, a little love. But when dawn came up the next day, God provided a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Now that's my inflection, obviously, but that, when I read that, I don't hear Jonah being like, it is better for me to die than live. Jonah's mad, he's tired, he's hurting, he's ticked off at God. It's better for me to die than live. It's interesting. If we go back and there's, there's a word that's really important to all those verses. Provide. Or if you think it has to be appointed. Or purpose. Isn't it interesting that as Jonah sits waiting for the destruction that he hopes God is going to provide, it says that God provides shade. And then it says that God provides a worm. And then it says that God provides a scorching east wind. Isn't it interesting that God's provision comes in the very thing that gives him comfort and the very thing that takes it away? And, and that gets Jonah to the point where he is so fed up and so mad and so angry that he says, it would be better for me to die than to live. Which is exactly the response that my kids give when they have to eat vegetables they don't like. It's better for me to die than live. I wish I wasn't here. I remember my son looked at me one time and he said, my, this world would be better if I was not ever born to you. And I thought, all right, well, a little Shakespearean there, but I get it. Right? And we laugh because that's exactly the same thing Jonah's doing. Like, this is how he sounds. The mentality we should understand Jonah has is the same of a child that does not want to eat his vegetables because he doesn't realize they're good for him. He only sees them as judgment. Because sometimes our kids see that as 
us hating them. You would never give me carrots if you loved me. <laughs> Only Twix bars. My touch. My touch. <laughs> Worst marketing campaign ever. Mason, do you got more water for me, bro? So read verse 8 and 9. Thank you so much. Sorry I had to call me a sister. So when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonas that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry with a plant? Do you do well to be angry with a plant? In Jonah's response, being a calm, collected, cool prophet. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. I, can't you just see Jonah as a little kid? Yeah, I, if, you're, if you're a parent in here, I know you've experienced this. God speaks to Jonah. This is God, creator of the universe, speaking to his prophet and says, Oh, do you do well to be about the plant? Yes, I do. I do well enough to die. It's, it's this mentality. This anger, this resentment that comes from a desire to be right for God to do as we think he should do, not as God thinks he should do, or knows he should do. And we do things like this. We don't get our way. Things don't work out like we want to in our timing, and we look at God and we're like, yes, I should be angry. How dare you? We shake our head and our hair bobbles like that. What happens? <laughs> right? We've all seen that. But that's what Jonah does. God goes, oh, you think, you're, you think you should be mad about this plant? This plant that I provided. Like, you do well to be angry about the plant that I provided. And Jonah says, yes. Yes, I do do well. So well, I could die. Man. If that is not the heart of our church today, I don't know what it is. Because, see, here's a lie we've bought into. We have bought into a lie that God's provision always has to feel like God's blessing. We, we've told ourselves that God caring for us, that God, if he truly loves us and wants good for us, means that God will always bless us. And if you don't believe me, I want you to turn on any television right now. Seriously. Take a Sunday off. Maybe not anytime soon. Go turn on TVN or a plethora of other channels, and see what we are putting out on television. And saying that that's Jesus. Statements like, if God loves you, he will care for you, you won't be sick, you'll have all the money you need, you'll have all the stuff you need. We pray in Jesus' name that God would provide us a Mercedes. Literally saw that two weeks ago. And, and we've, we've messed up because we get mad at God because we say that God's provision has to equal God's blessing. And what we don't realize is that sometimes God's provision is a blessing. It doesn't feel like a blessing all the time. Because sometimes God refines us and grows us and refocuses us. But how often, church, how often do we, when living through a season of God's provision to break our hearts, to break our hearts for him, 
to break our hearts for people, to break our hearts for our city, to break our hearts for whoever he is calling us to, how often do we only see the ground scorching in front of us and see it as condemnation and see it as God's judgment and see it as God not caring or see it as God forgetting about us? How often do we see exactly what God is doing and instead of trusting him and running to him, we point at the ground and say, yes, it is better that I die. I do do well. Because we don't understand that God's provision doesn't always feel like God's blessing. The world is falling apart around us. People are dying for hope. And we're concerned more that people say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. How dare they? Even to a point we go out of our way. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. The Lord would want me to say. And you too. And here's very bound to do that. Because that's what we're concerned about. We're not worried about the heart of the person. We're worried about being right. Now I'm not saying that Christmas isn't about Jesus. All right? I promise. You're in church. We, we believe that. But what if our hearts were about people? There's nothing wrong with saying Merry Christmas back. Somebody says Happy Holidays. But maybe getting on Facebook and arguing about why you're never going to go back to Target because Sue on aisle four said Happy Holidays is probably not the correct approach. The world is falling apart around us. And we're missing it. But we see in that section, God provides... Shade. God provides a worm. God provides the, the heat, the wind. What good could come from God providing worms and scorching wind? Like, that's, that's an honest question. I think it's probably the biggest question people have when they talk about faith and Jesus and God existing. Well, what good could come from bad things? Why, when things are hard, would God actually care? How, how am I supposed to see that and go, yes, okay, God, I love you? But I think, guys, we miss this consistently. We say, God, you give me this, whatever this is, this heart, this desire, this hope, this thing. And then God takes it away and we go, whoa, I thought you loved me. We have this vision or this goal and it's not working. We go, God, whoa, I thought, I thought you loved me. And so our hearts become cold and they grow hard. And then six months or a year or five years or ten, we're wondering whatever happened. And I think the issue, again, is that we don't understand that God's provision doesn't always feel like his blessing. See, we're, we're quick. And guys, listen, I'm guilty right here. Like, it starts here. We're quick to bless God's name when things are easy. And when he is operating what we feel like is proper and correct, when his capacity matches ours, when, when we are right in and doing the right thing and everything fits and everything works, we are quick to bless God's name. But we are also so quick to blame when God's provision and desire may be to grow us even though it hurts. Even though it's not easy. When things don't work out immediately like they should, and you feel like you're doing the right thing, we get mad and blame God and go, God, if you were here, why would you let this happen instead of going, God, what is it? 
What am I missing? Why, why are you operating in a way that isn't what I want? Because, again, we told ourselves our desire is that God operates in our wants, even when he's giving us what we need. And that's a hard thing, right? That's a tough thing, because life would be easier. Listen, we would fill the church up, not this one, but everyone. If we could come in and say, hey, meet Jesus. Here's a $30,000 check. Wipe out your debt. There'll be another one in two weeks. God's going to take care of you. Make your life easy. Everything goes away. You have no concerns, no worries. Your children are going to be perfect. No more lying. No more back talk. <laughs> Amen. That college you want to get into, you're in. Good. Golden. Go. Pay for it. Don't worry about your retirement. God has $10 million waiting in a bank reserve for you just to live life. All sounds good, right? But that's not the reality. And I know I'm speaking in crazy hyperbole here, but I, I think even a section of that can lead us into the proper place and the right heart. That sometimes God gives us our need at the cost of our want. A, a godly father utilizes discipline to break his children of incorrect thinking. I, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I had the meanest mom in Silverleaf. She'll tell you that. In fact, we used to yell at our mom, which was a really great idea. And she would go, I know, I'm the meanest mom in Silverleaf. And you want to clap back and be like, yeah, you are. You're like, wait, she knows already. My plan is spoiled. I have nothing. Because like a godly parent utilizes discipline to break the child of incorrect action, incorrect thinking. Because if we gave our kids everything they wanted when they wanted, what would happen? They'd be little jerks. They would. And listen, guys, I'm not hating on people, okay? Like, don't hear that. But well, we all know that one kid, right? Or grew up with that kid. And you're like, man, this guy is everything. Like, I want that. If only my parents, yeah, well, we uh, had everything I wanted. That's why I had a Corvette when I was 16. No. But, but, but what do we see with these kids who grow up and have no discipline? Have no need? They're floundering. They're falling apart. And they're going, what happened? Life was perfect. You're right, it was because you were getting everything as a child that you knew you needed, that you wanted. And you said, this is how everything works. But the reality is that God, a godly father disciplines those whom he loves. He calls things out of us. He gives us corrective behavior so that we don't grow up and not know what to do with ourselves once maturity occurs or should occur. So what do you think about a child undisciplined? It's amazing. We say things like we go on, go to Target on Black Friday, and we see kids who are out at like 1, 1 a.m., who are 9, 8, 7, 6, whatever. Pick a number. It's good. All works. And we look at the parent, we go, oh, how could they do that? Do they know what time it is? Unbelievable. Whoa. Because our heart isn't for the person. Our heart is about being right. And going, oh, oh I, I would never do that. Huh. Think you'd find my kids out? Not at 2 a.m. Let me tell you something. Sometimes my kids are up at 2 a.m. 
And not because we're having a party or going to Chuck E. Cheese, but sometimes life is just that way. Parents, you ever driven your baby around at 4 o'clock in the morning just because you absolutely have to get sleep, and the only thing that puts that kid to bed is a ride in a car, even if it means you might fall asleep on the road, die in a horrible accident? Anybody? You ever done that? Yeah. Yeah. You, you want to know what's on the road at 4 a.m.? Nothing. And when it's 4 a.m. and you've been up for an hour in the middle of your five hours that your child has let you sleep, listen, not easy to bless the name of God or your child. <laughs> All right? It's not easy. But with that, too, I think parents, this is important to realize. And if you're not a parent yet, remember this. If you are, hear this. Um, please don't be so hard on yourself. Please. Please stop being so hard on yourself. We have expectations of our children that they are going to act and do everything that they should as an adult. And we've already told them once, or twice, or 10 times, or 50 times. And what we do is we allow those same parents to target at 2 a.m. who have no idea that your child may have been up screaming and kicking and fighting or slept for six hours and you're doing anything you can to tire them out. They might not understand that perspective. And so what we do is we hold ourselves as parents guilty at, at the hope that someone else won't. And we go, well, if, if I know how terrible of a parent I am, they can't tell me how terrible of a parent I am because I already know. And that'll make it better or something. Don't be so hard on yourself. There's, there's such an incredible and immense pressure to be perfect. To be the perfect husband, to be the perfect wife, to be the perfect parent, to be the perfect brother or sister or grandparent or son or daughter. We have this intense pressure that we are not allowed to have error. We can't mess up because we are expected to have perfection in all things. Because if we mess up and if anyone actually hears that we aren't everything we want to be, what will they think of us? What will we think of us? And so we hold ourselves guilty out of fear that others will, hoping that we'll get out ahead. But that's the very thing that Jonah does as well, that sits him on the side of the city, waiting for its destruction, because he knows that if they think he's a false prophet, if God doesn't destroy it, then they might not think he's as great as he thinks he is. And we do the same here with us in every facet of our life. Let me give you some freedom, parents. A good parent, a loving, godly parent is not one who does not fail. A loving, godly parent is one who teaches, learns, and disciplines when they do. And they do it in love, and they do it outside the expectation of their child. Listen, my son thinks he runs our joint. He does. But it's good for him to learn he doesn't. And sometimes God does that with us as well. As we read verse 9, let me get back in verse 9 and 10. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry at the plant? And he said, yes, I do well enough to be angry, angry enough to die. <clears throat> and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, though you did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in the next. Man. God says, do you do well to be angry at the plant? Jonah, yes. Yes, I do. Check his head. And God says, listen, you are angry about a plant that you did not 
begin, you did not grow, that you did not bring the worm, and you did not make perish. You're angry about something that you had nothing to do with, that you had no control of. This is what you're angry about, so much you will die. Do you think it's better to die than to sit right here with me? And here's what happens, guys. God isn't confused. God isn't asking Jonah, like, oh, well, tell me how I'm wrong. Help me understand, please. I'm missing this, angry prophet. Help fix me. God, God is not doing that at all. He's not confused about his purpose and what he's doing. Instead, God's revealing Jonah's heart to himself. <laughs> he's revealing Jonah's heart so they'll understand it doesn't line up with God's heart. God says, you're mad about the very thing that you had nothing to do with. You're mad because you think I'm not doing what you want me to, what I'm supposed to. He says, but Jonah, you didn't do anything with the plant. You didn't cause it to grow. You didn't bring the worm. You didn't cause it to die. And yet you're cursing it. Being mad about it. You didn't bring the heat, the wind. And yet you covet those things. And, and guys, this is what God is trying to help Jonah understand. That that is exactly, exactly how God feels about his creation in Nineveh. That Jonah's heart was so bent against people and was so comfortable and so content that he was in the club and no one else was and that was okay. That God decided, or Jonah decided how God should act. That if God should relent, and when God again didn't act in the way that Jonah thought he should, Jonah got mad. And some of us miss that as well. That when God changes our situation, whether it's good or bad in the moment, it may be that he's breaking us down in order to refine us. And that's hard. Listen, don't hear that that means everything's easy and good. Please don't come here and think that I'm saying like, oh, you know, just have a trial, really fight through, be like, oh, whatever, God will deal with it. I'll be all right. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that it's worth the fight. It's worth the trust. It's worth allowing God to break you down to a point where you can refocus everything and your trust is fully and only on him. It's some, maybe for some of us, guys, it's time for us to give up this idea that we have to be all, everything, all the time. Because a lot of times that means we lead out of fear because we don't know what the next thing is to do. Instead of following Jesus and have other people follow us, like our families. In fact, 1 Peter 1 is a beautiful verse about this. This is what it says. Starting in, I'm going to read starting in verse 4, but verse 6 and 7, whatever they want, to, want you to hear this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is beautiful. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Guys, listen. If you are in the midst of a trial or pain or you feel like a failure, that you're not good enough, you're not a good father or husband or boyfriend or daughter or wife or grandparent or son, whatever you might be, and you think, how could God love you? I want you to come 
right back here. And I want you to hear that you've been given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. It's not something you can lose and be bad enough to give up. It's something that God holds on to and restores every day. He's been kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's being guarded by God's power for you. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. For though you have not seen him, you love him. Church, your hardship, your trial, the thing you might be angry about God at that you don't understand because he's not operating the way you think he should may just be that God is calling you to wait, be patient, and to allow him to change your heart, even if it hurts. To know that this is for your good, that no matter what might be taken away here can never be taken away in heaven. That your faith will be made genuine in trial. See, I think our, our issue, guys, is that we consistently say when things are hard and when God doesn't activate things that we feel like he needs to or move in the way we want him to or when life is hard and it seems like God is relenting to everyone else except for us because things are tough and we don't understand and we're doing what God wants and we're tired and don't get it, why our kid won't just be quiet for five minutes. Why God won't give you that child that you're begging him for. Or those bills that are killing you. Or why God won't answer your prayers of why something happened that never should have happened. Why God isn't listening. See, the answer, or the question rather, instead of asking God why, try asking God what. God, what do I need to learn? God, what are you trying to teach me? What am I missing that you want me to know? We have to stop getting hung up on the why. The Jonah was hung up on the why. Jonah sat back on the side of the city and said, why aren't you destroying this? Why, aren't you, why are you allowing me to look silly right now? To people who don't even care about you. Why do you not care? Why did this leaf come and then die? Why would you provide me momentary hope? to rip it away. Because sometimes, church, God provides the shade as he does the worm, as he does the scorching heat. But God's answer in verse 11 says this, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. There's a lot of debate about that last verse. Some scholars say that what they're saying is 120,000 children who aren't capable of knowing which way, which would mean there's another 50 to 70,000 adults. Or other scholars think that's because what they're saying is that there's people who are so morally lost and confused that they literally do not understand right from wrong. 
because it's been so blurry. But what they don't argue about is this, that God says to Jonah, he will not destroy the city yet because there are hundreds of thousands of people who do not yet know. And the book ends. Not with a resolution, not with a benediction, not with Jonah going, oh, all right, God, yeah, no, I'm good. Thanks for clearing that up. It just ends with God asking, whose plan is more purposeful? With God asking Jonah, is it not more important for me to care for all of those people than it is for you to get what you want? Now listen, judgment came. 148 years later, the city of Nineveh was destroyed. Down to the rubble. It said not one brick upon another. Down to nothing. But God had purpose in Jonah being there and allowing that time. And we won't know what happened with every one of those people until we're in heaven as well. But I can tell you this. We have time. It's all we have. And there are people out there who are doing the same thing have no idea how much they need hope. And so church, I want to ask you this, what is God calling us to? What is God calling you to? Not why, but what? What do you need to learn? What is our focus? What needs to happen? When the book ends with just like that, sometimes it's because we need to understand that there is something else. Something else that God may be calling us to. What should you be doing? Whether it's how you love people, how you care for others, how you give, how you serve. I can't answer that. But what I can tell you is I'm going to have Aiden play for just another minute or two. And I want you to sit where you are and cons consider that. Just if you don't do this after church or spend three hours in prayer like I do every Sunday, I want you to have an opportunity to do that now. Ask God to search your heart and know what it is he's called you to that you need to consider. Because it might be something greater than you ever anticipated. So I'm going to pray. We'll have a minute or two. And we'll finish. Father. Hey, I hope you enjoyed today's message and that you feel so encouraged by who God is and who he thinks and knows you are as well. If you have any questions about our church or our ministry, you can check us out at trailside.church. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have an incredible, incredible day.